Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast, where the church's status quo and sacred cows get rounded up, simmered down, and dished out. And now, here's your chief cook, author, innovator, filmmaker, and founder of Group Publishing, Tom Schultz. Welcome to the Holy Soup Podcast. When it comes to matters of faith and the church, one of the most frequently asked questions that we hear is, what's happening with our young people? And there's been plenty of research showing that today's millennials and Generation Z young people are trending away from the institutional church and to some degree away from religion altogether. What's behind some of these trends? A new organization is formed to find some answers. It's the Springtide Research Institute. Its executive director is somebody who's familiar to Holy Soup listeners. It's sociologist Josh Packard, who authored the groundbreaking book, Church Refugees, and he's with us today. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Yeah, it's great to have you. Well, give us a, a brief glimpse of the new organization and how and why did it come about? Well, you know, so it, a lot of it actually stems from the work that, that I did with church refugees and going around and talking after that and, and realizing that the problems that the church is facing are not just problems that the church is facing. They're, they're larger social problems that are going along all over the country. Uh, every institution is facing them. There are issues about institutional trust, um, you know, changing social environments, the, the different you know, technologies and times that young people are growing up in that are so markedly different than, than what their parents and other adults grew up in. And so as I started to realize that and uh, realizing that we, what we really needed to do is broaden the perspective of how adults who care about young people are engaging with them and, and realizing that this is not a problem that the church created and it's probably not a problem the church can fix, but it needs it certainly needs to address it and, and, and maybe make some changes and tweaks along the way. Mm. Well, the organization I know now is focusing on people between the ages of 13 and 25. And let's step back a minute. Even before your new research began, what did we know about this age group and their spirituality or connection with religious institutions? Yeah, well, I mean, the news for, I mean, if you're a religious leader, the news has not been great. It's been, you know, largely... The, this conversation has proceeded through one of the term disaffiliation, young people leaving the church, and you hear about the nuns all the time. Um, and so the, the demographic trends here are that there's less and, uh, less and less participation, fewer and fewer people signing up to be members and going to services. And that's certainly true across the board, but it's more true for young people than, than any other generation. Well, so far with your new research, what strikes you about the trends and the makeup of this demographic, people between the ages of 13 and 25? Yeah, well, we got really interested in this because the, I sort of feel like the church is having the wrong conversation here. It's been, you know, the, the conversation about disaffiliation is not particularly helpful. Uh, which, what we've got now with a generation of 13 to 25-year-olds is uh, they're not leaving the church. They were not raised in it to begin with. They're not rejecting anything. They just didn't know it. And while that might, for some, like the, that might seem like the answer is like, oh, so they need, you know, evangelism so they can know what we're about so they can sign up again. I don't think that's quite the issue either. What has happened over the last 50 years in this country is this dramatic loss of institutional trust. And that's true across all generations and across all institutions. Religion is no exception here. What, what is different about the religious world is that they've been a little bit slower to adjust than maybe some of our other social institutions in this regard. 
And so what we started looking into was like, well, you know, this must be having dramatic consequences. If there's not religious leaders to help guide young people through life's most important questions, you know, where are they turning? Because certainly 13, 15, 17 year olds are still asking themselves what are essentially religious questions. Why am I here? What should I do with my life? You know, what is the meaning of life? And so we, we set out to try and understand who they're turning to, how they're navigating those questions, um, what sort of answers they're coming up with. And a big part of what we ended up discovering is that, you know, adults are still really important. It's just that the nature of those productive relationships have shifted a little bit. I know in uh, your research that you've uncovered some, uh, well, what some might call really disturbing information about uh, the isolation and loneliness that uh, young people are feeling today. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this was mostly just us confirming what other researchers have already begun to figure out. And Cigna, the, the healthcare company, released a big study about this a couple of years ago, basically laying out that for the first time, young people are the most lonely generation uh, that we have in this country. It's usually something that, when we think about isolation and loneliness, it's something that's normally for the, the elderly. And Cigna's study was the first one that came out that's, that showed that it's young people who feel it most, and not only do they feel it most right now, which is new, but they feel it at a higher level than any other generation who's been previously studied. And that was true in our, in our survey too. The levels of social isolation and loneliness are off the charts and the consequences in terms of people's spiritual lives, their emotional and mental health lives is, is dramatic. If, it, you know, if this was like a drug epidemic or something like this, like one in three are, you know, young people feel like they have nobody to talk to, no trusted adult in their lives. If this, you know, there, are, there are real consequences that come with that in people's lives, but we don't necessarily always talk about it in the way that we should in terms of its severity. Well, and as you've compared what's happening in the culture at large and what's happening within churches and religious institutions, it, I think people might assume that a church or a youth group would be an obvious antidote to loneliness and that this is where you'd find all the good news for where young people can plug in. But what is your research really showing? Yeah, well, that's what we thought, too. We asked those same questions. Um, and and we, we actually got, you know, a lot of our, you know, when you survey all the way down to 13-year-olds, you've got, you've got kids who are still very much, many of them at the beholden to what their parents want them to do. And so we found relatively high attendance levels of, you know, nearly two-thirds of kids going to some sort of place of worship once a week or more. But, but the connection there to a religious institution has no impact on how lonely they feel. And that was actually more disturbing for us. Um, so attendance alone, just, just being involved or connected to the institution um, was not a protective factor against social isolation or stress. It was not something that led to increased mastery or a greater you know, sense of their spiritual or religious self. Why, why uh, is, is that? True, even for, you know, even for young people who said that they became more religious over the last year. Well, so that's a really good question. And I think it does point us back to this, to this issue of um, institutional distrust. I, I, don't, I don't think that just because you're connected to an institution or you're attending or going or showing up, there's, there should not be an assumption that that means that you agree with everything that's happening there or that it's a meaningful interaction for you. And I know that's a difficult, um, a difficult pill to swallow, I think, for those of us who are maybe from an older generation where, you know, institutions were these great things. And like, you know, I tell the story often of my dad who grew up Catholic and he said that the most, one of the most important people in his life was his priest. And I responded to him when he told me that by saying, I don't remember you talking about a priest. And, and he said, oh no, not a priest, just the priest. Like anybody who was a priest, 
<laughs> you know, had authority in my life and was important to me. And I think about how different that is now, that just because you're a pastor or just because you're a priest or just because you have a particular title doesn't mean that you have trust. And it doesn't mean that, the, that young people are listening to you. And that's what we found for sure over and over uh, in this study in particular was if you don't have a relationship, a, a personal relationship with a young person, you should not assume that they are listening or believe anything that you say. You, you uh, reported in your summary here that nearly 40% of kids report that they have no one to talk to and attending religious groups or gatherings does not have an effect unless they have that uh, that one-to-one relationship with an adult who cares. So what's happening there it, during the time that we have young people at church or, or mm-hmm. in a youth ministry, uh, what's happening there that uh, is not breaking through that sense of isolation? How can a kid go to a youth group and, and still come out of that feeling isolated and lonely? Yeah, it's a, so we, we, not only did we survey uh, you know, young people across the country, but we also did um, follow-up interviews with a bunch so we could begin to understand exactly those kinds of questions because that was a, that was a real thing for us too is that we figured that that would like be the sort of um, the golden you know key for this solution but I, what we uncovered is that you know when when you're leading with programs and you're trying to do this thing through an institutional lens what happens is that young people you know young people didn't report feeling like they didn't have any connections they have lots of connections they just didn't have very many meaningful connections and so what that translates into in that question of do you have somebody you can talk to if you're in trouble uh, or if you need to talk, you know, where 40% of them say no, is that they've, sure, they've got all this programming, but they don't have any relationships that are coming out of it because they are sort of seeing the programming as just that, only programming, not, not actual, not an adult who they trust taking an active role in their life. You know, many have described today's church model, whether it's uh, uh the Sunday morning worship experience for everyone, or if it's youth ministry and a, and a youth group, many have described that current model as presentational. Uh, what happens there comes from the microphone in the front. That's, that's what happens. Any communication comes from there, rather than being a fully relational, uh, dialogue-based uh, environment. And your research seems to indicate that uh, that model uh, isn't really working, at least in terms of breaking through this sense of isolation and loneliness. Is our, is our entire model of ministry today in need of a relook? You know, I really like the way you said that, Tom. It's, you know, a lot of times when, when I'm talking with church leaders about this kind of thing, they, it, it comes across uh, to them, I think, as a, a sort of fundamental criticism. And, and, it's, and it certainly is not intended that way. It's, it's a the, church, the model that the church primarily employs right now through programs and expertise and delivering a, you know, a message from a, you know, a, a podium with a microphone at the front of the room, that worked for a really long time. It was a great way to do ministry. Uh, but the world has changed around the church. And so I think you're right. Like it is time to revisit these things. And certainly, you know, having meaningful participation and interactions with young people where it is a dialogue, that seems to be a hallmark that keeps coming up again and again about how effective relational ministry is done, you know, in 2020. Hmm. You know, what we're talking about uh, with young people, uh, when we talk about loneliness, I think it's no small problem. Uh, 
loneliness can contribute to despair and depression, and those things can lead to suicide, which we know is a growing crisis among uh, young people today. I know in our area where we live here, we we uh, essentially lead the nation in teenage suicides, and it's horrible what, what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Do you see your findings as a wake-up call for churches and youth ministries to some serious things that are going on that we need to address? Well, I think it is. I mean, I think it is a wake-up call. But you know what's really interesting is that when when I present this this work to people who are doing, you know, frontline work with young people um, as part of their jobs, it's not a wake-up call for them. They know it. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, the the wake-up call is is really in that sort of middle ground around like, you know, I, I actually said this at a conference a couple of weeks ago. I said part of what we want to do at Springtide is to give you the sort of ammunition to take back to your bosses to let you stops focusing so much on counting attendance and how many programs you put on and those kinds of things and and lean in a little bit more to the metrics that matter that they know matter for preventing suicides and connecting young people and making sure they're not alone which is you know how many times did you go out to lunch with somebody you know those you know how many kids do you know by name um and and because the 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 impact of that as they intuitively know and our research shows is dramatic Kids who have just even one adult in the life of a kid reduces the the severe effects of loneliness and isolation in half. So like even just being the one trusted adult matters a whole lot in ways that I think matter, you know, not just to, not, not just a social good, but also to spiritual good. In your research and in uh, some of your conversations that you had with young people around the country, when it comes to a relationship with an adult, are we talking about the adult, the youth minister, or the pastor that uh, is necessary, or that kids are talking about that, that, that they have that relationship, or is it uh, other adults that may be a part of the ministry and that some kids relate to one adult, other kids in the same church relate to another adult, and that means that uh, it's, it's important not only to have a key person, a youth minister, a, a key pastor who may be doing a good job, but it's also important to have a variety of adults who are going to be able to plug into different kids in different ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm not ever going to stand up here and say that, you know, expertise doesn't matter, um, that experience doesn't count, because I think it does. But we want to leverage that expertise now in, but, you know, one youth director can only go so far, one pastor can only talk to so many people. So we need to leverage that expertise in terms of leaning into the other adults in the church and in the larger community that can play effective roles and meaningful roles in the lives of young people. And I think that's, I don't think that's actually rocket science. Um, if we spent, you know, if we spend as much time doing that as we do on programming on, on worship uh, for Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights or whatever, I think that, I think that's entirely doable. The things that kids told us that young people told us that mattered to them are not things that require advanced training or skills. You know, but basically it was, you know, five things. They said, show up, um, you know, be, be a consistent presence in my life, make meaningful interactions, um, not just, uh, you know, passing conversations, but, but let's have real, let's have real interactions with, with each other. Do a good job of listening. Number three, be accountable, hold me accountable to the things that I say I want to get better at and build an accountable community. And then number five is, uh, you know, be the expert, but let me drive the timeline, which I think is a little bit of a tricky one with the way we normally do things in the church, but it's also very doable. I mean, those are things that anybody can do. It doesn't, it doesn't require a, a, a particular expertise. I, the expertise comes in in sort of coordinating all of that work, I think. Have you found a particular model of ministry or structure 
that uh, is working well? Is it is it a formal mentoring program? Is it uh, connecting one-on-one -on -one relationships that are, are trackable and prayed over and so on? What, mm -hmm. Did you find any particular models that are really working? So uh, we've just finished up the results of this study. And so we've started actually turning to that question now. And there's a lot of you know, useful resources out there that we're going to start putting together to, to see if we can help resource some people. But you know, so Search Institute has some, some great models for how to build healthy and productive relationships. Um, and they're doing further research around those things. So that's one place that I would turn. But the, the real answer here is that all of this is going to look a little bit different depending on your context. So I'll give you one example is the, the Youth for Christ chapter in, in my hometown in Greeley, Colorado. They track every conversation with every young person that comes through their doors. Uh, they use a, they have an app that they use to do it and it's all tracked to spiritual development milestones and that's what works for them because they get kids coming in, you know, with a variety of traumatic backgrounds and experiences and usually they have a consistent point of contact, but not always. So they want to make sure that anybody's equipped to have, you know, to do what that kid needs at any moment. And so for them, that's a system that really works incredibly well. But for other places, that's going to be, a, you know, a wrong size solution regardless, the approach is going to be the same, which is that we have to find a way to systematize and, and scale up relationships. Hmm. You've mentioned uh, a couple of times in your summary to the research that belonging comes before believing. Uh, that concept is one that's well established, at least uh, from your background in sociology. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? And how are today's churches doing with that concept? Yeah, well, I, so it's not a, you know, that's not my opinion. <laughs> the, the notion that, you know, if, in order to create durable, long-lasting communities that are thriving, that we, we have to get a sense of belonging first. Then a shared set of beliefs will come out of that. And, and that shared set of beliefs can be guided by the leaders of that community. When we do it the other way, when we try to get people to sign on to a particular statement of beliefs or a statement of faith ahead of time, before they ever gain access to the community, it may work in the short run, it may have some, some success at the beginning, but it's incredibly difficult to maintain. Um, in fact, it's just not, a, it's not what sociologists and social scientists would consider to be a stable community. Because what happens is that you've got people who can't bring their whole selves to that group because they're afraid that you know, some part of their life, either their questions that they're asking or something that they're doing might violate one of the tenets of faith and so, or the statement of beliefs and so they won't share that part and if you're not sharing your whole life you're not really in community with each other there's not really a sense of belonging you start to feel judged and isolated and ostracized i don't think the church does a super great job of that uh I, oddly enough i think it's incredibly baked into the dna of the christian church to be a belonging kind of community and over the last 40 or so 50 years we've, we've really swung that pendulum the other way for reasons that i don't entirely understand but are undeniable that that the the believing seems to be coming first. It's sort of like putting the cart before the horse. And how does that affect then young people when you, when you bring that concept down to belonging comes before believing in your research, how is that played out? Well, they wouldn't use this term, but I think the, the one that, the term that I kept coming back to is that it, it feels very transactional to them as opposed to being transformational. It feels like they're there just to be a number that's counted. Um, like, okay, we've got one more, one more person on our team, you know, one more person on our side, um, that it isn't really about their own, their own faith or spiritual development. 
Um, and so they, they feel like it's, uh, you know, what, what, what they'll tell you is that it feels very judgmental, that they can't ask the questions that they want to ask or need to ask. They can't have the conversations that they need to have. They can't share the things in their life that they're really struggling with because the consequence they, they feel like of being able, of actually being truthful and honest about those things is that they get kicked out of the group. Um, and so it doesn't really feel like a place of belonging for them. Hmm. Well, when uh, looking forward with uh, your new organization, Springtide Research Institute, what's next in your analysis and ongoing research? Yeah, we're, we're going to have, a, it's going to be an exciting year. I mean, the, we've got a book coming out this summer, too, that'll focus and really dig into the values that young people care most about with the organizations that they, that they belong to and that they engage with. Um, and, and then later in the fall, we'll have a, um, a flagship report about the state of religion and young people in America. And that's going to be a, a pretty intensive data collection effort to really dig in and understand the contours. I mean, I think the numbers that get thrown around a lot are ones that are sort of misleading and not in terms of their accuracy, but in terms of their action. And at Springtide, we're really about trying to produce research that is actionable. So, for example, if you know that 30 percent of young people claim that they have no religious affiliation or that there's going to be X million of you know, disaffiliated people by 2050, that's I don't question the accuracy of those numbers, but I don't know what you do with them if you're a pastor in Des Moines. Um, so we're going to be really trying to get underneath some of those numbers and, and figure out and dig into what this might look like for the church in the future. Mm. Yeah, looking forward to that. Well, thank you, Josh. We'll watch uh, with interest as your research continues. In the meantime, listeners may find Josh's earlier book, Church Refugees, helpful in understanding our changing times. It's uh, These are times of rapid change and and uh, we need to understand uh, what's happening around us in order to be the best that we can in ministry. So thank you, Josh. And thanks, Tom. See you next time.